Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Shivanya Corbin Johnson, Democratic candidate for Congress in Pennsylvania's 10th. Thanks for coming on. Of course. Thank you for having me, Jordan. I appreciate it. Yeah, we're glad to have you on. So for starters, could you tell us about your background and what brought you to a run for Congress? Yes, happy to do so. I am from York, Pennsylvania. Um, This is where I was born and raised, um, also where I'm running for Congress. Actually, when I was growing up, I was raised by a foster family for the good part of my childhood until my paternal grandparents got custody of me when I was um, 10 years old. They actually didn't really know too much about me until I became two years old. And what the courts ruled is that I would spend, you know, one week living with my mother, one week with my father, one week with my grandparents, and one week with my foster family from the ages of two to 10. And then by the time I hit 10, I was with my grandparents almost full time, we'll say. I had the opportunity to get an amazing scholarship and attend Georgetown University. So that's where I did my bachelor's degree. My second year there, I ran into Senator Casey. He was speaking at an event and I walked up to him and said, sir, you don't know me, but I'm a first generation college student from York, Pennsylvania, and I want to intern for you. And it worked. I got an internship with the senator, graduated Georgetown two years later. Uh, Upon graduation, I got a call from Senator Casey's office and they asked me to come work full time for them. And so I did. Went back to his office and worked full time. And I also began my master's degree at the same time I was working for the senator. I went to George Washington University in DC where I studied US foreign policy in India, Pakistan, and the Middle East. And I speak five languages now. So all pretty, pretty great. While working for the senator, I actually got a phone call one day from the White House and they asked me to come work for the Obama administration. And so I did. I left working for Senator Casey and went to work for President Obama where I served as advisor and assistant to the director of the Office of Management and Budget. It was an amazing experience to serve, you know, directly beside the secretary in charge of the $4.1 trillion budget and just seeing the work that was done for job creation and economic development. And so when I was thinking about what I wanted my next steps to be after the end of the Obama administration, you know, I, I really wanted to give back to my community. I have always been really involved in what ha- what is happening in the York area and the Harrisburg area since I have a lot of family there. That I said, you know, I want to use the skill sets and the knowledge that I gained on Capitol Hill and working for President Obama and work to make sure that we get a representative who wants to represent the people of the district. And so I put my hat in the race to run uh, as a Democratic candidate against Scott Perry for this 2018 election. I think every day I become more and more um, happy and excited about my decision. I love the impact that we can have on people, and it's really an honor to be able to speak with people and to uh, potentially have a chance to influence their lives. And so I love what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> I'm kind of sad when, it, when it's going to end soon, but hopefully we'll be successful in the long run, and then I'll get a chance to legislate and really create good change for people here in my area and actually represent the people and not just wealthy donors, as our current representative is doing. Could you tell us a little more about your district? As I'm sure a lot of our listeners know, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court recently struck down the GOP's congressional gerrymander. Was your district changed at all because of that? Yes. So my district was changed because of the gerrymandering case. Um, as you mentioned, uh, the Supreme Court ruled the congressional districts to be unconstitutional, um, and the governor agreed. And I agreed also. I'm currently... 
we have 18 congressional districts in Pennsylvania. Democrats can win five districts and the GOP can win 13 districts without having to really try or campaign. And that's not representative democracy. And so I really applaud the Supreme Court and the governor for taking the steps needed to make sure that we have a more equal playing level on both sides of the aisle. My district was affected. So I was running in the original Pennsylvania 4th district. That was all of York County, all of Adams County, where Gettysburg is, um, a little bit of Cumberland County, and just Harrisburg City, which is the capital city. Um, And that district was R plus 11, as deemed on the Cook scale. Just so if people don't know what the Cook scale is, um, R plus 11 just means it was very, very conservative. Um, After the uh, redistricting happens, I... Uh, only have half of your county now and not the full your county. We completely lost Adams County. We have more of Cumberland County that includes a city called Carlisle. And we have all of Dauphin County, which is where Harrisburg, the capital city is situated. And on the Cook scale now, our district is R plus 5.5. So we went from a very conservative district, R plus 11, to nearly a swing district at R plus 5.5. And what that means is that this is the first time since the 1960s that Central Pennsylvania has a chance to be blue. Um, You know, it still leans in Republican favor, but there is a chance to excite people and to really get a base of Democrats, independents, Republicans out, and hopefully to create a blue wave here in central Pennsylvania, one that we haven't seen since the mid-1960s. So I'm excited, and I'm definitely tapping in, hoping to bring out more of that energy, and uh, it's a good day in central PA. So So what is it like running as a young Black woman in a conservative district? (laughs) Uh, That's a great question. (laughs) Let's just say I knew what I was getting into before I... I jumped into this race. Um, You know, this is my home area. I was born and I was raised here. So I know a lot of the uh, thinking and a lot of the perceptions that I would generate by being an African-American woman in this race. Nothing is really of shock to me. I will say it is disheartening at times to see the level of importance race and gender hold in determining who to vote for. There are people who will come up to me and say, you know, I like your policies better. I actually think you have some of the strongest policies on the Democratic side, definitely the most progressive person on the Democratic side, but we are not sure if a a Black woman would be successful in this area. So we're on the fence about voting for you. Uh, So it's just interesting, you know, to see that your policies, no matter how good they may be, how thought out and whatever skill set and expertise you may have. I mean, I'm the only candidate running who actually has experience working Capitol Hill and working for the White House. But the fact that I'm an African-American woman somehow seems to trump all of those qualifications. And additionally, you know, there are people who I run into who ask, you know, why aren't you doing something more womanly? And I and I always question them when I say, you know, more womanly? Uh, what are you talking about? I don't think running for office should uh, be a gender-specific path. And they said, yeah, well, we we see that you're not committed to anyone. You know, why don't you start a family? Why, don't, why aren't you committed to someone? And I say, you know, I am committed to someone. I'm committed to the people of York, Cumberland, and Dauphin counties. And that's my main commitment. It's, it's, it is disheartening, you know, to see that race and gender can sometimes bypass all my qualifications and all the, the passion and the love I really do have for my area 
criteria. But at the same time, I use these quote unquote two negatives or two strikes, as some people have said, in my in my advantage. I am a woman and we've have had the women's march that just took place last year and all the anniversary marches that took place recently. And just to see the women who came out and who were still excited about the strides women had made in history and the strides that were con- going to continue to make. It was amazing to see. And and for that reason, you know, a lot of women have been joining on and have been supporting my team. And we need to make sure we have good female representation in the state level and the federal level. Just to give you some figures, in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania is ranked 39th out of 50th in terms of female representation on a state level. And we are 49th. 49th out of 50th in terms of female representation on a federal level. That's horrible. (laughs) There's nowhere else to say that. That's just horrible. And so we need to make sure that we get strong women, you know, qualified women to run for office and to make sure that women have a voice on the state and the federal level. And that's what I'm doing. Um, In terms of being an African-American running for for Congress, uh, as we said, you know, some people do see it as a negative, but I see it as a positive. I have generated energy amongst so many my minority groups who felt like they were overlooked, who felt as if, you know, people were not going to listen to them and did not want to represent them. And talking about in terms of African Americans, you know, Native Americans in our area, Latinos, LGBT community. I one thing I wanna say is I am really upset with the logic that a lot of people have that if some sort of discrimination didn't happen to you, it didn't actually happen. Um and I do not believe that. And so by being a minority and by, you know, being aware of discrimination in many different types of communities, people have latched on to the message we have of inclusion and the message we have of wanting to make sure everyone's voices, regardless of your age, sex, religion, sexual orientation, ability, will be represented on Capitol Hill. I guess I take my two negatives that some people will see and make them a positive. The opioid epidemic has really plagued Pennsylvania. Has that had an effect on your district at all? Absolutely. And it's sad to say the opioid crisis is a public health issue that we ineffectively treat as a law enforcement crisis. I mean, there are social and economic factors feeding into this epidemic that we need to address. But first and most importantly, what we need to do is make sure those who are suffering in the grips of this crisis have the help that they need and that their families and the communities have the help and support they need to fully recover. It's interesting because the opioid crisis affects people, you know, of all races and all creeds um, and is particularly pungent in communities that are already suffering from economic and government neglect. What we fail to realize is that the opioid abuse is nothing new, but the rate at which the epidemic has taken off is actually staggering. And the drugs that are available for people, such as painkillers, heroin, fentanyl, they're becoming more dangerous and more lethal than ever before. And so what we see here in Pennsylvania and in my district and around the U.S. is that counties and townships are in desperate need of guidance and resources to be able to stop this epidemic. You know, I read a statistic recently and they said nearly a thousand Americans die per week due to this crisis. And I believe that it's long past the time the federal government provide 
much needed assistance to address the opioid crisis. We obviously have a crisis on our hands, but we need to provide medical teams. We need to provide extensive research because if the federal government does not tackle this epidemic right now, it could really easily mirror the 1950s war on drugs, you know? And instead of providing the upfront resources needed to defeat this epidemic in the century, like the war on drugs, the opioid crisis could become a problem for the next four generations, costing us billions more in taxpayer money and thousands and thousands more of precious lives. When I get to office, you know, I would definitely put my emphasis and my pressure on solving the opioid crisis now. You know, it's a personal issue for myself, for my friends, for campaign team members. Almost everyone has been affected or has had someone they know or someone's um, friend they know who um, lost their lives to the opioid crisis. And so we need to solve this problem now um, and as quickly as possible. Otherwise, you know, it could be another 40 years of this epidemic happening. And that is at the detriment to the American economy, but also, like I said, thousands of precious American lives would be lost for something that we could be working on today. So as you said, the war on drugs has affected so many Americans for decades now. Could you tell us about how you hope to deal with the consequences of the war on drugs? Like I said before, I believe people are being incarcerated for drug use. It's costing taxpayers thousands and thousands of dollars to incarcerate people for nonviolent drug use. And we should be resolving it in other fashions. You know, we should be resolving it through treatment. We should be resolving it through other ways rather than incarceration. I was reading some statistics earlier, 65% of prisoners suffer from addiction, but only 11% out of the 65, only 11% actually receive treatment behind bars. Because of the treatment that's given is just so low, many people actually resume abusing drugs once they're released from prison. I don't believe that the war on drugs and like I don't believe the opioid crisis is a law enforcement issue. It's really about treatment and how we need to treat people right away rather than incarcerating them. To incarcerate one person, it costs about $32,000 a year just to incarcerate one person. Um, but to provide treatment to one person, it is only one-sixth the, the cost of incarceration. To me, it's plain and simple. <laughs> like, why would we pay $32,000 to incarcerate someone when we could pay one-sixth the cost by providing treatment? And with this treatment, the rate of using drugs again is much lower than that of incarcerating someone. It helps them. It helps their community. Um, and, and on the economic side, you know, it's more more economically stable to give provide treatment than to incarcerate. I don't know why it's in the question between treatment or incarceration. With a strong criminal justice platform and a focus on education, do you have a plan for how to end the school-to-prison pipeline? It would be necessary to work with Democrats and Republicans on both sides to push for the end of the school-to-prison pipeline. And that also go plays into part of privatizing jails. Many jails in the area, and there are even some jails in my district, which are privatized. And so people receive funds for the number of persons they can send to prison. And, you know, honestly saying that the majority of people who are in prison happen to be minorities, especially Blacks and Latinos, uh, which breaks up a lot of the Black and the uh, Latino communities in the area. 
I strongly believe that education is the backbone of society. And so I want to make sure that we have, you know, educators and that we have policies in place who also echo that sentiment and want to provide the best resources available for their students. Um, and once students graduate, we want to make sure that students have the ability to get jobs, jobs that provide a living wage and provide full-time employment so people do not have to become reliant on jobs such as selling drugs or other, you know, illegal jobs, which then can lead to recidivism and the ongoing uh, rate of incarceration. So that's what I would want to work on um, while in D.C. And also, I guess once a person is in prison and once they are released, what we need to do is find a way to you know, help to integrate this person back into society, help them get a job, help them, you know, be able to fend for themselves and get an income. And so they don't have to be, they don't have to fall into the traps of the prison system. Um, you know, when people are released from prison, they normally are only given 30 days to find a job. It is incredibly difficult to find a job in 30 days, whether you do or do not have a record. But if you do have a record, many people won't accept your application or even hire you for an interview. So we need to make sure those who do have records do have a chance to become a part of society again. And I'm not sure why people would not want that to happen. But it's for one reason, it keeps communities together. Um, and when communities are together, you know, crime is lower. Both nonviolent and violent crime rates are lower, which is better for everyone. And secondly, it's, you know, if people are not in jail, then taxpayers are saving money. As I said before, it costs around $32,000 a year to incarcerate someone by keeping communities together and also by saving more money for taxpayers and bettering the economy. It's better for people to have good education. And for those with records, it's more beneficial for us and for them and for all of society to include and integrate them back into society. And lastly, how can folks get involved in your campaign? Where can they find you online? Awesome. Yes, we are happy to work with anyone, regardless of where you live. Like I said, my district is um, half of York County, half of Cumberland, and all of Dauphin County. But we've been getting great support from people throughout Pennsylvania and people, honestly, throughout uh, the U.S., which is fantastic. People can check out our website. Our website is CorbinJohnsonForCongress.com. That's C-O-R-B-I-N. J-O-H-N-S-O-N, the number four, congress.com. Or they can check out our Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, and Facebook. They are all S-C-J, the number four, PA. So S-C-J, four PA. My team and I, you know, we respond really quickly and we are happy to have the, the support of people in and out of Pennsylvania because we really want to make sure that we get uh, a representative, myself, who wants to represent the will of the people. And like I said, not just wealthy donors on Capitol Hill. This is my community and I want to make sure that we actually take care of my community on Capitol Hill. But we are more than happy to have anyone support outside of the district or outside of the Commonwealth. Yeah, okay, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. We really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you for inviting me. This was fun. I hope we get to do it again soon. Yeah, for sure. Again, I'm Jordan Valerie, politics editor at Millennial Politics. You can find me on Twitter at Jordan Val Allen. Make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to our newsletter, and check out our merch at millennialpolitics.co. And stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening.